I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is the first installment of our new podcast, Sound Strategic. And what we are doing in this conversation is to showcase the wealth of analytic and intellectual talent at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. The podcast is going to have the same kind of pattern each time, a similar set of questions that each of our folks answer, and it is our hope that by having being part of a conversation with them, that you will take an interest in reading their work and seeking them out as sources if you are journalists or um, people organizing coursework. Won't you please use this as a tasting menu of the extraordinary talent of this institution? And today, our first guest on this podcast is the outstanding leader of our defense and military analysis team, Dr. Bastian Gigerich. Bastian has been a Fulbright Fellow in the U.S. He holds a a degree from the University of Potsdam, a PhD from the London School of Economics, and he runs our largest research team here. Bastian, welcome. Corey, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here for the first edition of this, to be present at the creation, and I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I thought we would start, as you had suggested we do, by talking about NATO's big Trident Juncture yeah. exercise. Since you are yourself a European security expert, I forgot to mention you worked in the German Defense Ministry from 2010 to 2015, and have written a number of supremely good books on European security. Thank you. So tell us, how should we understand Understand what's going on in this NATO exercise. I think it's an interesting uh, case, actually. Trident Juncture obviously started at the end of October, ran through to November 7. Uh, it got a lot of traction in, in the media for being the largest exercise that NATO has run in the last uh, two decades or so. Uh, it takes place in, in central and eastern Norway. It took place in central and eastern Norway, uh, North Atlantic, Baltic Sea. So interesting, interesting geography. Um, but I think what what really is at core here is is uh, or are the other three messages that I think NATO is after with this exercise, and the the first one is really has has little to do with the overall size, and it's really about the mindset that it represents when an alliance like NATO goes on an exercise like. Trident uh, Juncture, and it's about it's about being ready. It's about it's about preparing yourself uh, for for dealing uh, with adversaries, and it's about the message that uh, you're ready at all times. And I think that is maybe something that wasn't uh, at the forefront of how NATO and NATO nations uh, thought about the alliance. And and I think the the second signal is is perhaps uh, or the second purpose is perhaps a bit more prosaic, but it is about making sure that the muscle memory is there. Um, that NATO can move large formations, that it can do so at speed, that it can reinforce uh, forward deployed elements. And it's really um, about recreating a sense of, um, uh, you know, almost uh, just routine in, in doing those kinds of things that NATO has not done for a little while. And then I think there's a signal in there as well, internally and externally, uh, about for NATO member states, the solidarity that Trident Juncture represents, the unity that it is meant to portray, and, of course, uh, to uh, those on the outside who might have designs 
uh, on NATO allies. Uh, it is clearly a message of deterrence uh, that NATO is in the process of strengthening, rebuilding uh, its deterrence, uh, which uh, some uh, might have felt has become a bit brittle uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah. I noticed that the Russian foreign minister suggested that uh, if NATO returns to a posture of deterrence, Russia would take this as aggressive. And they also suggested that this exercise was... Um, a dangerous and destabilizing one. How do you react to that? Yeah, with with a, a healthy dose of, of laughter, I think, um, <laughs> because because really, um, uh, yes, you could of course say uh, an exercise means NATO is preparing for war. I think what it means is NATO is preparing to defend itself. I mean, that's what it's for. Um, that's what its uh, member states, what its governments, its electorates expect, um, and that's that's the whole point. So. Um, the Russian reaction is, of course, uh, interesting. Uh, it, of course, comes in a context of uh, a Russian uh, military activity that has uh, uh, grown uh, uh, over over the uh, last couple of years. And I think uh, it is it is it is clearly to me it's a signal that the message is actually getting through uh, more than anything else. Excellent. And what did you and your team of sharpshooters learn watching the NATO exercise? What do allies need to work on? What Were you surprised by anything we were still capable of that we hadn't exercised in a while? Turn your analytic eye to the exercise. I mean, for, for us as the defense team here at the ISS, I mean, we look at these exercises really as one of the me measures when, when we think about military capability, what, what people are are capable of and how we go about assessing that in, in an open source environment, which is which is what we do, and and so exercises uh, feature in in that in that bracket of, of our work, um, and I think you know part of it is in this case uh, is about military mobility. It is about uh, about uh, reinforcing over distance, um, uh, but it is also really um, about exercising a collective defense response uh, uh, in, in, a, in a challenging geography and under challenging uh, conditions. And I think that's really um, what, this, what this exercise represents, um, and that's why we're watching it closely. And, and it, of course, that's how we uh, integrate it into our data sets. Fabulous. So for people who are not quite as nerdy as you and I are, <laughs> um, some, give them some of the basics of who was involved uh, what level of magnitude? How does this compare, for example, to the big exercises that the Russians, uh, Chinese, and other Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, participants did in the Vostok yeah. exercise? Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here with Trident Juncture is uh, some 50,000 personnel, uh, 10,000 vehicles, 250 aircraft, uh, about 65 naval vessels, including uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier. Um, so it's a sizable, for, for NATO, by NATO standards, it's a very sizable exercise, still smaller than some, some of the exercises that, uh, that Russia has been involved in. But um, I think as a, as a signal of intent, it is, it is very clear um, and, and uh, certainly of a, of a size that is, that is notable. I think it's interesting that all NATO member states are involved, that partners uh, Sweden and Finland, who are not NATO members, but, but ha are obviously in that, in that geography and have... Uh, an interest uh, in being closely associated with NATO are, are involved. I think uh, uh, that uh, is, is a, an encouraging sign. Uh, I think it also tells you a lot about actually the defense policies of those two countries, uh, Sweden, Sweden and Finland, who, uh, who will uh, look at NATO um, as 
an organization uh, that maybe the majority of the population at this point does not want them to join, but certainly an organization that they want to be closely uh, aligned with. And, of course, NATO itself uh, uh, thinks about Sweden and Finland as potential uh, uh, contributors, actually, uh, in a defense case, and certainly in terms of uh, using airspace, possibly using some bases um, uh, to help NATO reinforce. Yeah, my rebuttal to the Russian concern about the NATO exercises would be if you guys weren't threatening NATO allies, we wouldn't have had the a consensus yeah. in the alliance to do big exercises again. It's a reaction to Russia's bad behavior. I, I think so. And and I think it is, it is in, in part, it is, you know, it's a process that started for a little over four years ago, um, um, the Wales summit in 2014, where NATO began to get its head around um, uh, a changing security environment in which a conventional or, or simply just uh, a mil military aggression, military confrontation in Europe became a very real uh, possibility again. Um, and I think the exercise fits into that, into that uh, adaptation process. And I think the interesting thing about NATO in that context to me is there's, there's a slight disconnect here. Actually, NATO has done a lot of work um, since then, uh, driving transformation forward from Wales to Warsaw to the Brussels summit that we had earlier this year. And yet it finds itself in a position where internally it feels, it feels uh, weak and conflicted. And, and part of it is obviously uh, uh, reactions to uh, the current U.S. administration. Uh, but uh, part of it is also um, just a sense of um, you know the magnitude uh, of, of the of the of the work that is ahead, in particular for some European allies who really need to rebuild forces that have hollowed out or have have been hollowed out over the past two decades or so, and and they are now realizing that that is uh, uh, you know a, a daunting task that will certainly keep them busy for for years to come. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the and and Germany figures prominently among those countries that need so. to rebuild their military. I heard a terrible joke about uh, the German defense minister having more children than more operational submarines. <laughs> Give us a quick snapshot of where Germany stands on this. Yeah, I think than uh, than any submarines. I'm, I think if I'm not if I'm not getting my numbers confused at the moment. But but I think where, where Germany stands is really um, a, a an important measure, perhaps, of where where Europe overall is, because Europe is uh, sorry, Germany is one of those countries that in Europe would actually move the needle if it decided to be very serious about about defense. It's one of those countries that would have the size uh, and the economic uh, potential to actually make a significant difference here. And I think when you look at the uh, the thinking in Germany, you know, in the, in the military establishment, in the leadership, civilian leadership, um, it, is, it is pretty clear that there is a return to collective defense, that there's a return to fully equipping the force so that it has the right equipment at 100% at all times for all contingencies, all things that had gone out the window when uh, Germany was... Uh, trying to adapt to international crisis management operations where one thought, well, maybe you can actually have something like just-in-time delivery for, for military maintenance uh, and repair. It uh, turns out that that's not quite as easy as, as people thought. And I think um, there's perhaps a counterintuitive moment here where, where I think in terms of 
Germany's strategic culture, the way the country and its elites think about the armed forces, I think that collective defense mind frame is actually a more comfortable mind frame to be in, even though ultimately it would mean uh, high-intensity warfare, which obviously no one desires and no one wants. But it is, it is a, a more acceptable uh, uh, posture, uh, perhaps, than, than international force projection for crisis management purposes. Sure. I mean, defending your own population and your own territory uh, sits more in the center of all of our reflexes, I think. Let me uh, ask you um, a tradecraft question, which is, so I'm sorry, let me first say that one of the things that I think has been so detrimental about the American focus in the last decade and at highest volume and nastiness in the Trump administration is this burden-sharing question. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that we have not succeeded particularly well in getting Europeans to spend more on defense. The Russians, Russia's bad behavior did that. You see the start mm -hmm. of European defense spending change after Russia's seizure of Crimea and, and interference, yeah. aggression in Ukraine. But what we did succeed in doing is persuading Europeans that they don't have the ability to do anything with their military forces, namely this sort of sense of progressive anemia. And for me, the example always is that um, Germany, France, and Britain were all mm -hmm. participants in the Iranian nuclear agreement, and any one of those three countries could win a war against Iran. If push came to shove, None of those three countries believe that about themselves, and they're not creating policies yeah. from, that, from that mindset of strength. That's what it looks to me we have succeeded. Yeah. Do you have a view on that? I think, I think this is really interesting because it goes to the, to the, to the fact that I think that there's a major misconception um, in, in that area. And I think actually our field, strategic studies... Um, war studies, or everybody who works, or you know, the scholars, policy analysts working in this, in this area, um, I think that's one of one of the misconceptions that that Europeans cannot achieve a degree of strategic autonomy. I think that's that's either lazy or or wrong. I mean, depending on 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 what people actually uh, feel about it. But I think, to me, what would that mean? It would mean decision making. It would mean capabilities, and it would mean the defense industrial capacity to 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 support that. Um, and and I think. For, for whatever reasons, we as Europeans, uh, perhaps with American help, uh, have talked ourselves into, into a position where we don't think this is possible. Um, yes, it would take a lot of money. Yes, it would take a lot of time. Um, but I think uh, clearly, uh, collectively, there is enough potential, there is enough political will um, uh, to actually try and, try and achieve this. And, and I think if one negates that or... or, or talks as if or, or conceives of this problem as somehow structural factors um, are being in the way. I think, you know, in the best case, perhaps it's a misguided attempt to protect the transatlantic relationship when actually I think it will be much better protected by, by a stronger European contribution, frankly. I agree um, with that. Or um, it is uh, really uh, an attempt at worst, an attempt to avoid some of the difficult choices because you would have... European governments who need to talk about their spending priorities, they would need to talk about where defense sits. Is it a discretionary activity or is it, a, a, is it something that you just need to get right? And I think uh, that is perhaps uh, where, where we're falling short and, and the result is 
this idea um, that is very strong um, that Europe uh, cannot help itself but be dependent on others for its security. I think that there's a lot, a lot we could do if we actually wanted to. I absolutely agree with that. It seems to me, I hope we never test this proposition, <laughs> yes. uh, but I think if Russia were to attack Europe, that the European countries, would, even without American assistance, could win that war. I hope we never test it, because I hope the Russians never attack a NATO ally. I also hope the United States' commitment always remains strong and vibrant to the collective defense of the allies. But it seems to me unquestionable that the Europeans could actually win that war. Before we close, though, I want to ask, I want to run through a list of a couple of questions with you. Sure. Um, starting with, how did you get interested in this work? How do you become a big shot defense analyst? Yeah. Um, well, I think, Corey, you have, I, I'll, I'll lay some of the blame on, on your doorstep, actually. Um, uh, and and uh, you mentioned the Fulbright Fellowship, uh, and, and that to me was actually uh, an important moment um, for my own professional interest and development, uh, because it really it really helped uh, broaden my horizon, get interested in into defense uh, uh, questions, transatlantic security questions. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's always a confluence of things that coincided in my case with Balkan crisis, uh, NATO around its 50th anniversary getting involved in the air campaign. And, you know, being German, it was a time where, where uh, there was a fairly intense debate in many European countries, but perhaps particularly in Germany, about um, when is it, is it right and justified uh, to, to use force? How do you think about doing uh, using force uh, together with allies and partners? And it was just um, a very uh, intense uh, moment, perhaps, where these where where some of these uh, um, conversations came uh, came to the fore, linked to um, actually at the time a Franco-British uh, proposal to give the EU an autonomous military crisis management uh, dimension. Um, and so these things together, the my you know the the uh, the security situation in Europe, uh, some ideas about where European cooperation might help, and then the opportunity to uh, take these unformed ideas uh, and and spend some time in the U.S. Uh, thinking about them with the help of some uh, uh, very smart and very experienced people uh, certainly put me on on this. Uh, on this trajectory, and and I think that's so about you know 20 years ago or so. That was probably the moment when I got interested in this field. Fabulous, best book in the field for you. Uh, uh, can I say the military balance? Probably not. Um, <laughs> yes, you can. Okay. Then in that case, obviously the military balance, um, which is a wonderful book. Uh, when I was a which PhD dear student, readers, he produces. <laughs> it's wonderful. You should get it. Um, uh, when I was a PhD student, I was waiting every year for the new edition to come out. But but some other books. If if, if I were a student now um, in 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 this field in international relations, interested in these kinds of problems. I think I would really like a book called Force and Statecraft by uh, Paul Gordon Lauren, uh, Gordon mm. Craig, and Alexander George. Um, I think it's a really uh, good book to explore the intersection between politics and, and the use of armed force, between diplomacy and, and, and violence, so to speak. Um, I think it's a really nice framework to, to think through these issues if we um, uh, you know, want to talk about issues of coercive diplomacy, deterrence, I think it's a book that really gives people, readers, a very nice framework to think through these issues, and then you can go and apply it to 
Iran's nuclear program, Taiwan question, Russia and NATO. It's really a very nice, uh, very nice book, a good textbook that that I would recommend. And and if I if I'm allowed uh, one one more, you are uh, because just because I recently read a book that I really thought I, I really enjoyed quite a bit, and it's and it's Christopher Coker's rebooting Clausewitz. And and I'm mentioning this book because it has a really quirky take on a really unwieldy subject, um, which is Clausewitz's writing. And Okay, so I'm going to go read it because I actually, reading Clausewitz for me is such it's drudgery. Not fun. It's not fun. I, it's so important <laughs> to master, but wow, I, I feel like I should be getting paid when I'm reading it. Yes. So, <laughs> so fresher takes on what should all of us know without me having to go once again into yeah. Clausewitz would be fabulous. I, I think I think it's it's really good for that purpose. And and I think Clausewitz in the original is certainly not fun. It's very confusing. And what I like about uh, Chris Corker's book is that he, um, he takes a, a fictional Clausewitz and drops him into real-world modern context, like a think tank conversation, a, a, a West Point seminar, and, and has that character enter into dialogue with these practitioners and scholars of war. And, and that's a nice way, actually, slightly quirky perhaps, but a nice way to bring these old ideas to life and it's certainly a much better read than the original. Sounds great. Top of my reading list. Okay, <laughs> the, what is the conventional wisdom in our field that you think is wrong? Well, I think I'd, I'd, you know, I'd like for a moment to go back to that strategic autonomy thing because that really bothers me, and 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 I think, um, you know, that's that's something that is so uh, ingrained um, in in our um, field, uh, uh, and and I think, you know, there are currently at least three different th- schools of thought on this. Uh, for one, European strategic autonomy is about uh, being a counterweight uh, to the U.S., uh, interestingly. I think that might be where the German, current German government or at least the foreign ministry is landing. Um, uh, for I think for the U.K., it is about probably about um, providing a useful contribution as a strong partner um, uh, to the U.S. And for France, I think it is literally about independent action. And, and I think it really strikes me um, that... Uh, there is, um, if you say this is achievable, the the reaction is usually well, it's it's either naive or unwise, and and it seems to me that that is really a case where we should just all think a little bit harder um, along the lines that we discussed a few minutes ago, um, and 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 accept that it's a big task, it's a big challenge. Maybe there could be an ISS project about it at some point. Excellent uh, idea. And, and, uh, and I think uh, we could help to correct that conventional wisdom that does suggest uh, something like strategic autonomy is not possible for Europe. Um, I think it's worth thinking about under which conditions it could be, um, what the cost might be, and whether we're willing to, to consider them. I'm not saying it's, it's uh, necessarily a great idea, but I think... Um, uh, saying it can't be done strikes me as, as uh, slightly short-sighted. I share that judgment that, the, that that's the conventional wisdom that's wrong. Okay, favorite piece of your own work <laughs> that you've ever done? What's, well, the, what's the one you like well, best? It doesn't need to be the best, <laughs> just the one well, you like no, the For best. my own sake, I hope it's still to come. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think something, uh, and where I want to give a lot of credit to, to the defense team here at the Institute... Um, something that, that I'm quite proud of is, is what we've done around the Military Balance Plus, that new database that we've built. It's been a long-standing ambition 
for the institute to bring together its defense data and analysis in an electronic resource that can be searched, that can be updated, that can give all these tools to people, and we finally managed uh, to do that. We've God, launched it now. somebody who spent hours and hours and hours <laughs> flipping yes. through pages of the book. Yes. Wow. Do I, I look forward to that? I've, uh, I, would, I, would, I probably would have shaved half a year of my PhD if, if this had existed uh, back then. <laughs> but but I, think, I think, you know, if you're looking for, uh, to help you build an evidentiary base for your policy work, for your market analysis, for your academic paper, or if you just like to count tanks and rockets, it's a great place to start. So, <laughs> so uh, I encourage you all to look at that. But um, you know, a, a non-ISS piece that, that I quite like um, that I was involved in, um, and it probably makes sense in the in the in the string of things that I've been talking about today, is a, a study that I did with a couple of colleagues a few years ago, uh, Heiko Biel and Alexander Jonas, that looked at strategic cultures in Europe, and ah. and we thought it would it was an interesting problem to try and understand why European countries look at the use of force of uh, look at different uh, multinational frameworks to apply force, look at how they organize civilian control of, of that instrument, and understand the similarities but also the, 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 the differences because we felt if we understand that, we can actually come up with ideas for how we can get better at collaborating, better at generating capability together. And then the problem we, of course, had is, well, there are so many countries, how do we deal with this? And, and we were able to bring together a, a group of uh, some 28 or 29 writers who all tackled different case studies of all EU member states plus Turkey, and we even managed to make them uh, uh, stick to, more or less at least, to, a, to an analytical framework <laughs> that we had designed. So, uh, so I'm quite proud of that um, uh, because, I, I, to my knowledge at least at the time, it hadn't been done because it seemed too unwieldy. Um, and and uh, luckily, at that point, the German Ministry of Defense decided that it would be good to actually invest in this. So uh, that was a really fun thing to do. Okay, and I have actually not read it. So thank you for giving me something else to put on my reading list. <laughs> my pleasure. Closing question. Favorite data visualization? Yeah. And for listeners, we are going to post the graphic alongside the audio of this so that you can see what he's talking about. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Um, if, if we were to fast forward to February 2019, I think my, fa my, my favorite visualization then will be the new wall chart that we will publish with the Military Balance 2019, which will deal with China. I won't uh, provide any, any spoilers here, but I think... Uh, the team has done a tremendous job, um, and, and I think everybody interested in, in China's military modernization will want to have it. Now, at this point, um, I, like, I like visualizations that are relatively simple but have a big message, so to speak. And, and what we have done recently is we've mapped the exports of armed uh, unmanned aerial systems around the world and, and put that onto one, into one image uh, that just shows these, these different dynamics. And I think from that one image, you get uh, a lot of different messages. You see how China's export activities are, are expanding. Um, you see uh, that these systems are now showing up in theaters and in places uh, and in the hands of people who previously did not have access to this technology. You see, on the other hand, how the U.S. has... Uh, had a, a very, very restrictive uh, policy when it comes to these exports, perhaps creating some unintended effects here uh, in terms of competition. Um, and, and I think it's a story that also suggests something about the, um, 
the shrinking technological advantage that the West enjoys. And I think that's a really important point because it harks back, it, it ties back to how we, the West, if I may use that uh, term, you know, the members of the Euro-Atlantic community, uh, how we have become accustomed to using armed force over the last two or three decades. And when these assumptions change, we really have to fundamentally rethink how we, how we use this instrument of statecraft. And, and I think, you know, there's one image um, uh, that shows that, that we've, that, we, that we've put together, that shows all of this in one, in one go, so to speak. And I think, um, I think that's a really powerful visualization because it's one image that really at least makes me think and and uh, uh, touches on a lot of couple a lot of different points which is which which is why I like it so much yeah 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 it works at all sorts of levels yeah. I mean the number of arrows coming out from China yeah, of countries they are itself. proliferating their UAVs to the fact that the US as a producer is only providing them to NATO allies it looks like that South Africa is getting in the development deal yeah. and the Russians as well. It's a fabulous graphic. Folks, go to the site to see it. Basin Gigerich, thank you for this education and thank you for the good work you do for the Double I Double S. Thank you very much, Corey. It's a pleasure. Mm-hmm.